everyone, and welcome to How Story Works from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and author Lonnie Diane Rich. And if you have issues with the messy, muddy middle in your novel drafting, you're going to love today's episode. But first, let me bring you up to date on my writing process, where I am in my novel. Um, all right. So when we last left our plucky heroine, she had been drafting a novel. She was almost done. She had to put it down so she could move, right? Um, and then I had already moved by the last time that I recorded with you. Um, but I also had to do um, like a cross country call. So I turned what was a simple and probably one of the easier moves I've done in the last 10 years, which is an in-town move just from the west side to the east side. There you go. Boom, you're done uh, into a, 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 an in-town move and a cross-country move because at the same time that I was moving from a smaller apartment to a bigger apartment, my best friend was moving from a bigger place to a smaller place and needed to get rid of a lot of her stuff and her furniture. It's really, really good. Plus, it gave me an excuse to spend time with said best friend because I love her dearly. So I went out to the middle of the country uh, to go and hang with her, uh, got a truck, put her furniture in my truck, helped her finish up her packing and her shipping and all the stuff that she had to do. Um, it was really, really great. We had an awesome time. And then I drove cross country in a big ass truck with all of this furniture um, and turned an in-town move into both an in-town and a cross-country move. So what happens next is, you know, what I call the crash, right? And I think that if you've been listening to me for a while, you've likely heard me talk about crash before. But let me go ahead and just review it for people who are new. Um, what crash is, is when you are doing something that requires a lot of energy um, and it's just got to get done, like there are just no other options. Um, what I do, I don't know if this is what everybody does, although I, I know that since I've brought up crash to a lot of my my friends and loved ones. They have adopted it because it is a phenomenon that they experience. But basically, my understanding of it is or how I have, have, have uh, narrativized it in my head is that I'm basically borrowing energy from the future. Right. Like I'm going into energetic debt, but I got to get stuff done. It's got to happen. I have to make it happen. So I push, 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 push myself to get stuff done. And then afterward, I crash. Now, the first time I actually noticed this happening, became aware of it, it was like after I'd written like my my third or fourth book and I, I like as soon as I was done, I got the draft done, I got the revision, I got it into my editor, I used all the energy to get everything finished. Um, I would have a week, like a week where I was completely friggin useless. Um, I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to do anything. I had absolutely no energy. I felt like vaguely like I was coming down with something, although the only thing I could say I was coming down with was, you know, tired. Um, so that was when I started calling it crash. Like, but I didn't realize the connection between this thing happened to me. This phenomenon happened every time I finished a novel because the novels were the things that I was putting so much energy into. And most of the novels I wrote, I wrote when I had small kids at home, you know? So, uh, so it was always just a thing. Like I just had, I had to buy all that, to borrow all that energy against the future. And then there comes a point where your body's like, bitch, you're paying this back now. Like she comes to you like somebody about ready to repo your car. Like you are going to pay this energetic debt one way or another. Um, so that's kind of how the the crash experience has been for me throughout my life. And I've noticed it a number of occasions. It's not always writing novels, but it's whenever I got to do a big push, when I got to move, when I got to do something big, when I just got to make an accomplishment um, and I'm on a deadline, I got to do it by a certain date. And so I just push through, I, you know, I borrow the energy from the future and then I pay it back later. So I had done all of this drafting for, you know, six, seven weeks, something like that, and then stopped and moved into the cross town move, which was a lot harder than I'd expected it to be. It was just it was just kind of rough. And then went cross country two weeks later and did that move. And so when I came back in like mid July, I had nothing in the tank and it was at that point that my body was like, oh, bitch, you're going to pay this back. So I did like a day of like moderate crash, you know, where I was like, OK, well, like, you know, I'll rest 
for most of the day. But I just have this thing where like I, I need to get stuff done. Like I need to constantly be accomplishing something, which might be something I want to take to my therapist. But so like I, I you know, I would do like these kind of half assed crash days. And then at night, like I started getting heart palpitations, like seriously. And that happens to me like a lot. That's been happening to me since I was 13. I've talked to my doctor about it. It's fine. Um, but it is a thing that happens. Right. And so like I I would get them at night when I when I went to go to sleep and I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Because I hadn't rested during the day. And I was like, this is really interesting. This is new. I hadn't, I've never had them before, like when I'm so exhausted and I go to sleep at night. So then um, I was like, all right, I'm clearly going to need to like super crash. So for me, a super crash is like just doing nothing and then taking a nap in the middle of the day. Like, or, you know, like not, not like playing video games, watching TV, but like not accomplishing anything. Like I didn't go to the grocery store. I didn't run any errands. I did nothing um, and deeply, deeply resented it, uh, deeply had issues with it. I did not like this at all, Sam, I am. But then um, the first night after I did that, no heart palpitations. Uh, the next day I got up, I started doing shit, started doing like heart palpitations that night. So clearly this debt that I thought I had paid in full had not been paid in full. So I did another day of nothing, nap during the day, then go to bed at night. Totally fine. Wake up the next day. I was like, I'm OK. I could do things, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm going to take another day. I didn't take a nap, but I took another day where I did not do anything. And then that night slept fine. No heart palpitations. Then on the third day, y'all. I bounced out of bed and have been feeling amazing ever since. And it seems so incredibly stupid to me, right? Like, I feel like the world's biggest derp in that I like for the last week or so I have been bouncing around. I started yesterday. I had a day where I started running errands at like 10 in the morning and at 10 at night, I still had energy. I was still bouncy. I was still doing shit. Like I haven't had a day like that in such a long time. And I just have to say that like, you know, please listen to your body. <laughs> Do not make your body give you heart palpitations at night in order to get the rest that you need. I feel like I can be, you know, the the warning sign for everybody else. I can be the bad example that shows you how to do things right. And it is get the rest that your body needs. If you're tired, if you're feeling overdrawn, sometimes you got to push through. Sometimes you're in the middle of a move and there's nothing you can do. But most of the time, if you can get a little bit of rest, I rested for two days in a row and it has been, I feel like I'm 25 years old again. Like it is insane how much energy and how like like happy I am to get up and go running and do all the things that I need to do and I'm feeling great so I'm just really going to enjoy and appreciate the fact that like um first of all that my body is very clear about how it communicates with me and when it needs to get my attention it fucking does you know it does not put up with any of this bullshit um and also now i'm i'm in this space where i've got the energy i'm able to do the things that i need to do and i'm going to get back to the book um what i decided is in the year of writing magically workshop which i'm teaching uh this year um with like you know i've got like 20 students and everybody's in there we're all writing everybody's drafting at their own pace some a couple of people have finished but most of us have not yet um even though we are technically like out of the draft drafting phase of the year. Um, everybody's able to adjust everything that I teach, you know, to basically make it modular to their lifestyle. So um, whatever's going on, some people have life interference where things happen, you just can't get around it. Um, so we're all kind of drafting at different paces, but the class itself is moving forward with the uh, the house story works part of the um, of the class where I am teaching all the principles and how story works so that when we go back and do our first revision, which is just you and your your draft, um, we're able to apply those principles and see how they might work to fix anything that may be going on there or enhance the good stuff, that kind of thing. So uh, so that's where we are now. And I'm like, OK, so when we get into the revision phase, because after drafting, there's six weeks of put it away, don't look at it, don't engage with it. Um, and then you go into your first revision, which is just you and the work. Um, and so there's a six weeks of like dead time. And I was like, okay, 
if I go back and draft, like I already have, you know, jotted down what's going to happen in the last act of this thing. I already know where it's going. I already have a feel for it. I've kind of set everything up. Um, I'm going to put it away, even though it's not technically done and complete in the draft form. I'm going to put it away and then I'll come back. I'll do the first revision. But I wanted to do the first revision in time with the class while I'm teaching that part, because I found that when I'm doing these things, when I was doing discovery, I was like, oh, yeah, I had forgotten about this because it's been so long since I've worked on a novel. Oh, I'd forgotten about this part. I forgot about this part. And so it allows me to like remember some of those things that I've sort of lost touch with in my writing process and to teach them as I'm going through it. So I am sticking to the schedule. Not everybody else is. That's totally fine. You don't have to for this workshop. Um, but you are learning all of the parts of writing a novel so that you can apply them when you're there, when your time is, is, you know, up when you're ready to go. So, uh, so that is where the novel is right now. I am trying really hard not to think about it. Although the six weeks of not thinking about your novel is quote unquote, not thinking about your novel because you're always thinking about your novel. I mean, that's kind of how it works, you know? So there are little bits and pieces, you know, that are coming to me and I just take notes and then put it away as much as possible. Like you got to write those notes down because you may have the absolute, you know, answer to problems that you might've had in the draft. Uh, but for the most part, you're trying not to think about it. So that's also another reason why I have loads of energy. When I go back into deep revision, when I go back into drafting that last act, um, I know it's going to I'm going to, you know, kind of get that energy drain again. But hopefully, hopefully next time I will have learned my lesson. But meanwhile, I have to tell you, I'm so excited about today's interview. When I did my call out recently for guests to come on the show and talk writing with me and ask me questions, I was really looking forward to being able to do a consultation with a writer who was having an issue that I could help them with. Um, and honestly, it's one of my favorite things to do. I just really love um, talking to writers who are blocked, who are, you know, kind of having a struggle and helping them work through that struggle so that they can get back to doing the creative work that they were meant to do. I love encouraging people to do their creative work, to to be whatever it is that they want to be. That is one of my favorite things. So I really enjoy doing that. And I do that in my writing consultations. And I thought, you know, it would be really great to be able to take on a client and put them on the microphone, you know, and then sit down and do a consultation so that anybody out there who is also struggling with that same thing can get the benefit of that consult. Um, so I really, really love that. Um, and when I made that call out, almost immediately, I received an email from Cara Stevens, who is a freelance writer, editor and children's author. And she was struggling with her full length novel writing. She kept getting stuck at like what we call the the muddy middle, the messy middle, uh, where you get a certain amount into it. And then all of a sudden you kind of hit a wall. So it was really great to have that conversation with her. I think that it will be valuable for everybody listening. I certainly hope so. I think that this is there are there aren't necessarily a whole bunch of like universal experiences when writing, but this is one that I think comes closest to that. This is one that I've heard from almost every writer I've ever known who struggles with this, this moment. It's kind of a little bit like the drafting doldrums. I talked about a couple of episodes back uh, where you just kind of get into the space and you're like, I don't know what to do next, you know? Um, so we sat, we chatted. Um, Cara is a long time how story works listener. So we got to sit, we got to talk um, and kind of, of like get to the core of what was going on with her. So I'm going to go ahead and stop talking. I'm going to transfer into that interview and I will meet you again on the other side. So now you write picture books, right? I do. I write licensed picture books. So I basically mm -hmm. write for mm -hmm. companies like Disney and Nickelodeon and Dr. Seuss. And I write books for them in their voice. And I've been doing that for many oh. years. How did you get into doing that? I started out at Sesame Street when I was still in graduate school oh, and wonderful. I just fell in love with licensed properties. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I love the idea of getting kids to love reading and storytelling. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that is to just get them in at the point where they're most excited. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, all right. So you've been doing this for a number of years and you also like coach other people on how to write uh, like picture books, right? I do. I've been freelancing uh, through Readsy for mm -hmm. about four years and mm -hmm. I also freelance for Nickelodeon. Oh. And what I've been doing is through Readsy, people just come and find me online and 
they send me what they've written, maybe their first draft, maybe just an idea. And then we work together for five weeks to go from idea to final manuscript. And it's a really, really fun process. Mm -hmm. And I actually took the process that I've developed over four years and turned it into a little book called Picture Perfect, which I actually self-published on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Self-publishing was a whole new journey for me. And uh, it's been interesting. (laughs) It's exciting. Well, that's really awesome because I know a lot of people really want to like get into um, to doing picture books. And, you know, I've known a lot of people who are writers, but they're also artists and they kind of want to play in that space. So it's really great that that resource is out there for them. It really is. I think some people are even coming to me. I have a couple of psychologists who are starting a child psychology practice and they mm-hmm. wanted to write a book um, about what it feels like to get an assessment. And yeah. so this is something they could hand out to parents say, mm-hmm. okay, you've made an appointment. Let's give your kid this book. And then they can understand what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. I had another person come to me who rescues feral cats down in San Diego. And she rescues them and turns them into outdoor cats or keeps them as outdoor cats. And Mm -hmm. so it's called Trap, Neuter, Release. And she really wanted to get the word out. So she wrote a picture book. I helped her go through the steps of turning it into a story. And now she's off and on her way to self-publish it. Oh, that's exciting. it's, It's so exciting to see these books out in the world. That's wonderful. So you've been doing all this work with picture books, you know, for this whole time. And now are you trying to get into writing novels? Like what's going on with that? You know, I've wanted to be a writer since I was seven years old. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that was what I was going to be no matter what I did in my life. And I've been a project manager and I've done business development and I've done editing and corporate writing and marketing. So in my spare time, I just there are always stories and characters running around my head. I have a a grown-up novel that's in the works that mm-hmm. I wrote and completed through NaNoWriMo. I have mm-hmm. a young adult novel that I've had perc- percolating in my mind for since the week my daughter was born. So that's almost 22 years ago. <laughs> and I have um, a middle grade novel that I'm really, really excited about. But I have so many ideas that I'm just stuck on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, you wanted to talk to me about your like your novel work and how to get unstuck. So so what is the specific point at which you get stuck in these projects? What happens when you start one of these projects, you get writing and then do you do you hit a wall or what happens? Interesting question. I think <laughs> It's basically the same thing for every book that I'm writing. I come up with an idea. I have a Mm -hmm. character. I have a situation. I have a setting and I have a premise. I have a log line and an elevator speech so that anybody who asks me, I can just tell them, you know, in a few sentences exactly what it's about. And I get writing and I get to about page 78. Mm -hmm. And then I know how it's supposed to end. But I know that a lot of books call it the messy middle. Mm -hmm. I call it the muddle. Mm-hmm. And and I just I get to the part where it's supposed to be fun and games and and I don't know where to go. And I mm-hmm. don't I'm trying to figure out why it's happening. And I feel like there are things that I don't know about my story. Yes. But I don't know what I don't know. Right. OK. Um. So now you said you had one that you wrote during NaNoWriMo. Did you finish that one during Nano? I did. I finished mm-hmm. it. And then I polished it with an amazing writing group. These two women I met uh, mm-hmm. through my local NaNoWriMo chapter uh, in Southern California. And I sent it to a friend who's a publisher and she had her women's fiction reader read it. And she's like, it's great, but here are some tips. And mm-hmm. I said, fabulous. I took a year. <laughs> I revised it. And she said, it wasn't what I was hoping. Mm-hmm. So you can feel free to submit it elsewhere. And so mm-hmm. I really never... I started a few times to revise it and I just Mm -hmm. sort of lost steam and I lost courage and, and I know I have to get back to it. So that one I did finish. And the reason I finished it was because it, I have trouble sleeping. And one night I fell asleep and I had a dream and I dreamed the entire novel. Beginning to end. That happens. (laughs) That happens. That is a really actually excellent story. A lot of novels have been finished on the backs of dreams, definitely. (laughs) And it Uh, just finished itself. Mm -hmm. It was it was one of those rare, rare ones where the muse just sort of found me and I 
plucked mm-hmm. it out of the air and was able to finish it. Mm-hmm. Uh, polish it? No. Finish it? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So you end up, so you start writing, you got everything you got. I, I love that you're like, I've got my elevator pitch. I got my whole thing. I am so bad at that. Like, I am dreadful at thinking about it. Like, if you ask me what the book I'm working on now is about, I'm just going to be like, well, you know, it's this lady, you know, and she's she's a dog. You know, it'll be like I, I'm terrible about figuring all. So I love that you've got all that like marketing side of it down. That's wonderful that you can do that. <laughs> um, so like also one of the things I think that we tend to do as writers is we um, we focus on our weaknesses and we fail to celebrate our strengths, you know. Um, and so sometimes what can happen is that, and I'm not sure if this is what's going on with you. I'm still diagnosing what's happening with you. Um, but I used <laughs> to have actually a similar phenomena where I couldn't get past chapter five on anything. Could not get past chapter five on anything. And um, part of it was that I would have this idea. I would get really excited. I would write it. And then I would go back and I would rewrite what I'd written. And then I would write a little bit more. And then I'd rewrite all of that. And then I'd rewrite. And I was constantly revising until I got to a point in the book where that desperate need for it to be perfect out of the gate to make it really like good and strong out of the gate would just take over and I would freeze like I wouldn't be able to work anymore. Now, what you're talking about, I'm not sure. Does that sound like you? Because I'm not sure if that sounds like what's going on with you. I think I, I have a, a bit of perfectionism where mm-hmm. I, I had been revising the beginning over and over again, yeah. changing the course of the story, changing the setting, changing the ages. I've I've worked past it. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, I know that I, you know, I have a lot more experience behind me. I'm, you know, well into middle age and I sort of have that confidence now that you yeah. don't have when you're younger. Right. Mm-hmm. And I know that that anything I write can be fixed. And so I'm mm-hmm. super happy that I'm at a stage where it doesn't matter if it's bad or not. Mm-hmm. So it's really getting to done. That's the problem. Right. I'm getting in my own way. Too many possibilities. And also where I don't have confidence. And this is like you know, deep, deep down in my, like, this is really exactly who I am. Mm -hmm. I, I don't feel fun or funny sometimes, you know, (laughs) like I just, I get to the fun and games part and I don't know how to do it because I'm so serious and I've worked so hard Mm -hmm. to know who the characters are and know what they're doing and know what they need and know what they want and know the lie they believe. And I've read way too many craft books over the past three years. Yeah. I was going to say Save the Cat is one of them, isn't it? Save the cat, one of the games. Yeah, because yep, yep. yeah, you're talking about fun and games absolutely. and that has absolutely no. Here's the thing with Save the Cat. And here's why, like, there are some things about <laughs> it that I really like, but mostly I hate it. And this is exactly why. <laughs> because the Save the Cat structure will, um, it gives you like 40 points that you do, you know, and, and I taught screenwriting for a while. So a lot of my screenwriting students would be like, oh, save the cat, save the cat. And I'm like, no, save the cat is nonsense. Because out of all of those points that it tells you to do, you really only have to do about seven of them. Like about seven of those 40 <laughs> points are actual things that you should do. And the idea that you should stop your story in the middle to have people wander off and do something else just to be cute um, that is not something like, uh, yeah, occasionally a movie will have that, you know, um, but it's it's not something that you should necessarily have or that absolutely not something that you need to have. So I think that maybe like because you said fun and games a couple of times is like being the point where you kind of go off, you know, uh, you kind of lose your connection with the story. And I think that you can you can give up on fun and games. You don't and you don't have to be funny. Like if if you don't feel funny, you don't have to be funny. And especially when you're drafting, like the big thing when you're drafting, when I was talking about perfectionism before, like one of the big things for me, the reason why I was able to finish my first book, which was part of NaNoWriMo, is because Chris Beatty, who's the founder of NaNoWriMo, said, write crap, write bad, deliberately write bad stuff. Because once you get it on a page, you can edit it, but you can't edit a blank page, um, which is a quote that was famously attributed to like 12 people. I usually attribute attribute it to Nora Roberts because I think she said it. But so basically, I think that like the perfectionism thing, 
I felt like I felt a familiarity with that stopping at that certain point, but I, I didn't get from you that perfectionism was a real issue. And I'm really, really glad that you've gotten to the point where you realize that it doesn't need to be perfect. Um, and that being a mess is actually something that you should go for. Um, in the workshop that I teach, I teach a year long writing workshop um, every year called the year of writing magically. And in that workshop, one of the things we did was I created a little sticker for our discord chat. And every time people were like, Oh, it's not good enough. Oh, there's this. Oh, I need to do this. What if I'm doing this wrong? I would put the sticker up and it just says, be a mess, be a mess. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, so I think that that might be like a small thing is just the willingness to go in and write stuff to get to where you need to go. Sometimes you need to lay down a few lily pads and then you can leap over them, get to where you need to go, and then you can take them out later. It's like scaffolding around a building that you're going to paint, right? You get the scaffolding up so that you can paint it and then you take the scaffolding down, but you need to build the scaffolding. Otherwise, you're just going to be throwing paint at the side of the building, you know? Um, so, so there's a little bit of that, but I think that a big part of it is, um, oh, quick question. I think this might be essential. Are you a plotter? So someone who knows everything that's going to happen and plans it out and has like spreadsheets and knows every plot point before you start writing, or are you a pantser where you come up with an idea and you kind of sit down and just sort of see where it goes? You know, I'm more of a plantser. Okay. Because I know, yeah, I'm in the middle. I, I, try the spreadsheets i try the note cards sticky notes have worked mostly i know the beginning i know the ending i have a real hard time with structure i'm not big on rule following Mm -hmm. i'm i'm just not i'm like and i i think that that's why planning really doesn't appeal to me and Mm -hmm. all of the books that you read you know have that element of planning in it so Mm -hmm. a lot of times i'll read all the books i'll kind of grok them internally and like put them into my being and you know having read so many stories right. over the, my life I sort of get what story is mm-hmm. um and then hopefully that'll that's the structural foundation and then I can just kind of come at the story but knowing the beginning knowing the ending and knowing my characters is really a, about and and knowing you know a lot of the beginning but yeah once I start getting to the messy middle or the muddle it breaks mm-hmm. down because I haven't planned it okay. so there's that duality of like yeah right. i guess i should be planning but i don't plan so now i'm stuck and then i reach out to you and i say help <laughs> everybody everybody gets stuck planners um pantsers, <laughs> you know everybody gets stuck um so okay so here's the thing um basically in order to pull off structure you only need four things right you need to start the conflict you need to escalate the conflict you need to resolve the conflict that's your climax and then you need to um show how the world has changed right so those are four things that you need to do when those four things span an entire novel right i simplified this whole thing about this is what you need to do but the problem with that is that those four things span an entire novel and basically you start the conflict and then you're escalating and then you escalate and you escalate and you escalate, you lather, rinse, repeat on escalation until you get toward the end of the novel. That's when you can have your climax. That's when you can show how that conflict is resolved. And then you do your resolution showing how the world has changed, which is what gives us meaning to that conflict. Right. So when you get to the middle and you're just escalating, 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 it kind of feels like you are on this endless escalator right and like what is going to happen next and the thing that um that i find tends to help in that messy middle is that it's it's not just that you're escalating but like you are doing whatever is most challenging to your protagonist like your protagonist is going into this conflict dealing with things the way that they always have and they must fail, right? So they try to do something and they fail. So they try something else and it's escalating. The stakes are getting higher and all that stuff keeps going. So in the middle, that is like the the part where you work with the things in your character that you want to challenge them on, that you think that they need, right? So you're taking escalations, but you're they're targeted escalations. So you're targeting them toward where your character needs to think in a different way, needs to give up old mindsets, needs to stop toxic behavior, whatever it is that you're trying to move that character through. 
you want to create targeted escalations in that second act, in that messy middle to keep that going. Um, so one of the things um, in like a basic three act structure, and again, like for structure, you just got to do those four things. But the three act structure um, with the seven anchor scenes um, that I laid out and how story works um, for that, those anchor scenes kind of give you a temple to go to next. So, you know, it's like Tarzan swinging on the vines, right? You know where the next vine is, right? Um, and so like in the middle, you're looking toward, you know, you've probably gotten, you know, your first act. So you've gotten the commitment to the conflict. You're into the second act where, the, where everything's escalating. And then you need kind of like that midpoint gives us something to shoot for, because otherwise this can feel like such a muddy space. Like, what am I doing? Where do I go? I know how it ends. I just want to get to the end. What am I doing with this space? And what you're doing in this space is it's like, if you've ever done like, um, running training or any kind of training program, right? Like that's when you are training yourself to be able to do the run, right? So like you've got to train your character and the skills that they need in order to achieve your end game. So this is your, this is your training space. But when I'm talking about the midpoint, what the midpoint is, is usually a moment in the middle where the protagonist realizes that the situation is not what they thought it was, that this situation has deeper implications, um, higher stakes, um, has more going on, that there's something that they didn't know or there's something that they learn oftentimes from the antagonist. I mean, that can be a really good thing to like learn something from the antagonist um, and and move forward with that and keep going. So I think that like one of the um, strategies for the messy middle, and I've just been in through a drafting process. So like, I remember this so clearly from like a couple of weeks ago, like me being in this space and just thinking about all of the ways. And I mean, this can be a brainstorm thing. Like here you are, you're at this place. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know where you want to go. Um, brainstorm. Like, first of all, if you were your character, like, you know how we have those moments where we just kind of imagine all of the worst case scenarios for everything, like have your care, sit in your character's perspective and write down what are the worst case scenarios? What are the things that my character is truly afraid of? And see how many of those things you can tick off, you know, in that messy middle to escalate all of that and get them to the point where they are mentally, emotionally, sometimes even physically fit enough that they can take this fight on. Um, so, I mean, does that help? Does that give you a sense of like how to bring stuff into that, that middle part? It absolutely does. Like as you're mm -hmm. talking, I'm making all these mental notes. I felt when I started to ask the question, like, I, I must not know my main character well enough. Mm -hmm. And and I must not have set up stakes that are high enough. But as you're bringing in all, all of these ideas and all of these tips on how to raise the stakes and taking her fears and making them worse, poor girl, mm -hmm. um, I am, I'm seeing, and I, I'm seeing that I already have a couple of them. Sure you do. Like, mm -hmm. she's afraid to drive and she's put in a situation where she has no choice but to drive through a big storm and rescue <laughs> the person she hates the most. Wonderful. So, Love that. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm already sort of intuitively coming up with raising those stakes. I mean, you know, I've I've listened to your podcast for a long time and mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time in the car and listen to a lot of podcasts and it sort of helps me process. Like I'll listen to it yes. with a lens toward whatever story I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And it's super helpful. And and here I am sitting here talking to you, which is so unusual. It's kind of kind of a mind <laughs> mind mess. Um, that like we're actually having a conversation. I'm not just listening to you in my ears. I'm looking at you. And this is really crazy. So anyway, um, but yeah, I'm still making notes and I'm still mm -hmm. thinking about my characters. And sometimes, you know, because I'm working on three stories at a time, I could jump in my head, like on three different train tracks mm -hmm. <laughs> and think, oh, okay. So this one needs this and he needs that. And, um, but it, it does really help to think of it as a training ground mm -hmm. to think of getting to the middle and and reframing it and not yeah. thinking this is a messy middle for me. This is a messy middle for my main character. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, and I'm yeah. making a mess for her to solve. Absolutely. And that's what she needs. Right. You know, I mean, she needs that mess in order to 
change enough to get strong enough to grow enough that she can achieve what you have in in store for her at that most pivotal point during that climax. Um, so now one of the things, of course, like, you know, as I'm talking to you about all the structure and escalating the conflict and all that kind of things is that going back to the conflict. Um, so just to give a, a brief, you know, like review of conflict, although anybody who's been listening to me knows, um, but basically like a central narrative conflict, a narrative conflict is a conflict that is goal based, right? So you have your protagonist with a goal and you have your antagonist with a mutually exclusive goal. So you have that at the center and then you structure your story by making that conflict worse and worse and worse and worse. So everything that you do in any of those, like, and again, I have seven anchor scenes that run throughout a story, just kind of tent poles that keep it going, Right. Um, so it's not a lot, but at those moments, those are the moments when you need to be sure you're escalating that central narrative conflict. Now, so I just want to ask you, you know, first of all, do you feel clear on what central narrative conflict is? Do you feel like I need to explain more of that to you? Or are you feeling okay with that concept? I think I, I'm clear on it when you describe it. And then I try to <laughs> apply it to my stories. And I always feel like so much of them so much of my narratives are an internal journey. Like yeah. I really have, um, you know, it's, it's, they're all coming of age, no matter how old mm -hmm. my characters are. Exactly. And, and I feel like a lot of them are truths that they have to get through in order mm -hmm. to come out on the other side, older, wiser, and able to handle what life has thrown at them. So I do have a problem sometimes finding the antagonist. Mm -hmm. in a story mm -hmm. so in I'll give you the example of this YA novel that I've been writing for 20 some odd years which is that this the story starts and Sophie's father has just died and her mother is always going off to find herself and so Sophie's father was her her stepfather was her rock and mm -hmm. so as her mother leaves to find herself again she leaves her with her grandmother who she's never really met and she doesn't really know in this unfamiliar place and she has to figure out who she is to mm -hmm. move forward, who she is without her stepfather, who, what her relationship is with her mother, and how to get back home and start leaving a normal life. I don't always know who the antagonist is. And sometimes that gets in the way of those seven uh, yeah. points or like knowing how to escalate the conflict because the mm -hmm. conflict is within herself. Well, I mean, an internal antagonist is absolutely legit. And really, really fun. And honestly, my favorite stories to write are internal antagonists. And even if I have an external conflict, I usually like to make a stronger internal conflict and run along that track. Um, and the internal conflict comes when somebody wants two mutually exclusive things, right? So, um, you know, like your, your character, she wants to go home, but she doesn't want to return to that environment, right? You know, like she, so she does and she doesn't, right? Um, and as she, like, if her goal is to get home and like, I'm not saying this is your story, but I'm just saying like, on a, like, as an example, you know, if her goal is to, um, is to go back home, but then she like, let's say she was sent to her grandmother's, she's getting in trouble. She's acting up. And until you can get your behavior together, you can't come home. She really, really wants to come home, but she keeps misbehaving because part of her doesn't. Right. So those are the kinds of things that you can figure out. But but knowing your character's central narrative conflict during drafting, you can definitely get away with not knowing like you can just start and like see where it goes and whatever. Um, in revision, you need to be clear. You need to know exactly what that central narrative conflict is. Now, you are in the messy middle of drafting. Right. So it's something where if you want to and if you feel like it would be helpful to kind of suss out that central narrative conflict, you can, you know, um, one of the really important things, I think, um, is that as a writer, you kind of like you have to know yourself and you have to know what works. And also you have to figure out with every new book what works for this book. Like it is a whole process, you know, and every time I start a new book, my process is different. Um, my approaches are, there are certain things that are different. Some things are the same every single time, but some things are different. And so kind of like, depending on the book that you're working with, depending on what's going on, you need to do that. Um, one of the things that like, again, you know, getting back to like the save the cat, the writer's journey, like all of those things. 
Um, any of those are things that you can do, but you do not have to. And the fun and games nonsense in the middle of the Save the Cat, where everybody goes off and farts around and does something silly. I mean, you're not you're dropping the story to go and fart around for 20 minutes. What are you even doing? Tell your story walking like that makes me nuts. And I've had students who have been taking like my I wrote I taught a beginning screenwriting course and then somebody else taught like a more advanced screenwriting course and they would use Save the Cat. And my students would come up to me and they'd be like, I don't know about this Save the Cat. What's going on with this? And I'm like, throw it away, throw it away. It's nonsense, (laughs) you know. So um, so part of it may be like you said, you've read a lot of books about writing um, and that's great. Like it's helpful where it's helpful. You know, one of the things in, in how story works that, that I try to really make a good point of in the beginning is these are principles, not rules, right? If you are a person and some writers are, some of us are, some of us need to know what we're doing so we can put our back up against these rules and then feel like we have some guidance and that's great. That's fine. You can use those principles to do that, you know? Um, And you can pretend that they're rules if that helps, right? But if the rules start inhibiting your creativity, then they are no longer serving you and you can and should throw them away. So if there's any expectation that you feel like um, you have to, I have to be funny and I have to have this silly, you know, honestly, the resistance to fun in games, I think, tells me that you are there to tell your story and you don't want to fart around and you don't have to. And you really shouldn't anyway. So I think that all of that, like letting go of some of these ideas about what you need to do and rather looking at all of the things you've learned from these storybooks, because all of them, it Save the Cat has valuable stuff too. All of them have valuable things, right? But when they become prescriptive, you know, where like I'm going to go and I'm going to do exactly what it tells me to do and then I'm going to make that work, that may not work for you, especially in a drafting phase, Drafting is so much of just, you know, leap of faith, you know, lily pad to lily pad, trying to figure out what your next step is. And a lot of times it can be really terrifying because you're like, I'm building this thing and I don't know if or when it's going to collapse. Like, I don't know when this whole thing is going to fall out from under me and I've got nothing, you know, because it's, it's kind of a high wire act doing that drafting. Um, But when you're drafting, I think, first of all, I mean, you're talking about one book that you've been working on for 22 years, and God bless you for that, because that is some staying power. Um, But my recommendation is that you take two months to draft, like two months, beginning to end, two months, draft it, write it. And that's like, write it. It's nano style. It's fast and it's furious. And the reason for that is that it doesn't give us the chance to let our inner critic, our inner critic can't keep up at that pace. So you've got to outpace your inner critic. That's the first thing. So you've got to move fast. And part of my problem before I ever did nano was that, again, I would write a little bit and then I would do and I would write a little bit and then I would smooth it out. And then I write a little bit and I'd smooth it out. And by the time I got, you know, like 70 pages in, I would be like, I don't know where it's going. And honestly, I don't even care anymore. Like, I'm not even interested in any of this anymore. Um, It's just so mired in all of these things. When you're doing a free drafting period where you go in and you just draft for like two months, right? You know, you write down your your word count goal and you say, I'm going to do in two months. The NaNoWriMo 50,000 words in 30 days, I think, is an excellent exercise. But I think that if you're writing a novel, you need a little more space. And you also need like, you know, not everybody can write 1600 words a day. That is a lot for some people. If you know where you're ideal, some people are ideal at like 500 words a day. Some people are ideal at like 2000 words a day. Neil Gaiman wrote Coraline at 50 words a night. He just wrote a sentence every night before he went to bed. And that was it. And it became Coraline. Like you just need to approach it in a way that is that is working for you. And the fact that like this um, approach is stopping you, you know, 75 pages in, it's not working for you. Right. So you need to like diagnose what is actually going to work for you. Um, My recommendation would be this. That you just read what you got. Do not edit. Just read it. Right. Set yourself up some time for drafting. And part of what drafting is, is that you are going to be unavailable to the people that love you. You are going to need them to do the dishes. You're going to need them to clean up. You're going to need like all that. You need to ask for support from the people around you because drafting is kind of a nightmare. Like, I'm not going to lie. I was doing I did two months of drafting 
And during that time, I would come out afterward in this haze. My husband would ask me where something was. I had no idea. Like, I am completely and a thousand percent in this thing. I couldn't remember words, except when I was writing. When I was writing, no aphasia. When I tried to talk to people later in the day after writing, I couldn't remember what the word for Diet Coke was. Like, I just like, it's just that way. So like so much of your brain when you're in an intense drafting period is like all of your brain is working on that book and the resources that are available for everyday life are seriously limited. So, you know, preparing for drafting is like, uh, you know, telling people that you're going to need their support, uh, making sure that you open up as much space. Like one of the things I have my students do is a life inventory. I'm like, look at your life and look at everything that you don't have to do. What can you cut out? You know, um, and that is such an enlightening moment. It's one of the first things I have my students do in the workshop. And it's such an enlightening moment because they're all like, oh, my God, you know, like I can save energy here and I can save brain power here and I can do this and I can just not do a lot of the things that I was doing before, you know, and that's OK because it's two months, you know. So I, I, if I were you, I would read it. Don't edit. Just read it. Just as a reader, go through and read it. Pick up wherever you stopped figure out how many words a day you're going to do, figure out, like, divide that between, you know, like, if you've got 60 days to write it, how many words a day are you going to generally want to get done? And, you know, some days you'll get more, some days you'll get less, totally fine, but just, like, have a general idea. And then go in and just write the worst schlock you can possibly write. The first couple of days, write terrible, like, make it deliberately bad. It's very, very hard to do. It sounds really funny. Very hard to do. Sit down and write bad shit for a couple of days. A couple of days of that, your inner critic is going to be like, I can't even with this, right? She's going to fuck off, right? And then you can start writing and start moving. And some of that stuff you're going to have to pull out later. You're just going to rip it right out and throw it away. But it served its, it served its scaffolding purpose. It got you to where you need to be to be able to paint that house. Um, and then you just every day wake up and say, how can I make my protagonist's life worse today? What can I do? Like, I don't have an inner, you know, sadist. Um, <laughs> try to pull on that as much as you can. Um, and just be like, how can I make things worse for that character today? And honestly, that's drafting. Wake up every day, write terribly as much as you can. When your inner editor like fucks off, then just say, how can I ruin this person's life today? How can I make things worse for this character today? And then you just do that and you just keep doing that. And then as you do that, you're going to find when you're like, how can I make things worse? What is the worst thing that can happen to my character at this moment? That is going to be naturally centered around that central narrative conflict. Even if you don't know what it is, your character does. Your character knows what they're afraid of having happen. And once you've got an angle on that, just write that. Just write worst thing, worst thing, worst case scenario, what could possibly happen? And then you bring that out and challenge your character. And that will carry you through to writing the ending that you already know you want to write. And then you get that done. At that point, you've got that middle drafted. It's going to be terrible. Some of it is going to be terrible. And you have to like kumbaya yourself to that. You have to like ohm, do whatever kind of meditation you need to do to make your peace with that. It's going to be bad. Put that all together. Then once it's written, you set it aside for six weeks and you do not look at it. You don't touch it. You don't think about it as much as possible. Like I'm still thinking about my, I'm in my six weeks now. I'm still thinking about that book, trying not to. Um, it's going to come up. You're going to have to take some notes because you're going to get a brilliant hit of insight in the middle of driving to the grocery store. That happens. It's fine. Just use your audio, uh, you know, audio, uh, thing on voice recorder on your phone and, and record a, a note for yourself. Um, but you set that aside for six weeks and then you go in with revision. And this is where I recommend, this is where you bring in how story works. This is where you bring in all that theory. This is where you bring in principles, not rules, principles, not rules. You bring that in, you read through it once without doing any edits. You take notes, you think about, you know, what is my central narrative conflict? How am I escalating it? How am I moving that forward through the book? That's when you apply all of that craft that you've been studying all of these years. And maybe there will be something from Save the Cat that will be helpful. 
If it's helpful, use it by all means. Pull it out. Use it. Absolutely. All of those craft books can be helpful in different circumstances. They're just not always helpful in every circumstance. And we like to get our back up against that wall and feel like we have something we can lean against. And we do not. We are creative people. There's nothing to lean against. You just kind of got to run at it, you know, run at it like the old Scots painted blue and naked screaming. Right. Just run at it. Um, so. Once you once you do that, you do that first revision, just you. Right. You don't show this to anybody. You don't let anybody read it. Just you finish that up. And then at that point, you can start getting like beta reader feedback and do another revision after that. But that drafting part, getting through that middle is the hardest part of the whole process for me personally. Some people love drafting and God bless them. I don't understand how that works, but God bless them. I love revision. I love going in, finding the mess and fixing it. That is like my favorite thing to do. Um, and for that, you want to have an idea of the structure. You want to have an idea of the central narrative conflict. You want to have an idea of all of that stuff. Um, but basically, that is what I would recommend for you as a process. How does it feel? You hear me say that. Are there any moments where your like heart seizes up and you're like, Ugh, you know, <laughs> I love the idea of throwing out fun and games, giving mm -hmm. you giving me permission to throw yeah. out the rules and just sort of look at the basic principles is very, very freeing. And I totally appreciate Good. that. I think mm -hmm. that we all need someone to give us permission to throw away the things that aren't working for us. Yes. And, and I really, really appreciate that. I think, um, the part that terrifies me, of course, is is when you say, and when you get to revision, I'm like, no, 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 no revision. No, just no. <laughs> so you just want to write a draft and never have to look at it again? Oh, yeah, I'll write a draft and then I'll give it to everybody else and have them tell me how wonderful it is. So that's all that's going to happen. So, yeah. yeah, no, that's really good. OK, let me let me yeah, talk I'm super to you. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. This is why if you want it to be perfect during drafting. That is that is where you're going to hit your head against the wall, because there's no way it can be. You cannot write a perfect book just out of like no matter how much preparation you do, no matter how much you learn, no matter how much you study, it is going to be a mess. And you need to, like, make yourself at peace with that mess. And the fact that it is going to be a multi-layered process. There's discovery, which you've already done because you've already started all of these books. So you've already figured out the basics of your character and all that. that all happened during discovery. Then there's drafting where it's just vomit on the page and see what happens. Right. Ugh, throw it out there. Right. Um, and then there's revision, which is where you make it neat. Now, here is the other thing, too, because you mentioned feedback. So I want to talk about that a little bit, too, because this is really super important. Um, I used to, I had a friend who, you know, we were both writers and, you know, and she was one of the most brilliant people I've ever known in my entire life. Um, brilliant, funny, just everything. And we would work together. And so, you know, she'd be working on her thing. I'd be working on mine. And we'd send each other the opening chapter, you know, as we were writing it. And then um, she and I would tear each other's work apart, like brutal brutal workshop, like MFA workshop kind of nonsense, right? Just tearing it apart before either of us had finished the draft, right? And this is the thing. Until you have finished your first revision, the only, you're allowed to show it to people as much as you want, but the only feedback you're allowed to get is what's your favorite part. The only feedback you're allowed to get is what is great about it. Because one of the things, and I mentioned this earlier in this conversation, is that as writers, we focus on our weaknesses that we just want to go and like play whack-a-mole with these weaknesses. But the fact of the matter is, no matter how many weaknesses you weed out, uh, there's going to be more, right? And some of them will be like weaknesses that, that aren't necessarily weaknesses, but in that moment, we think they're weaknesses and we want to pull all that stuff out and clean it all out and be invulnerable. We want to put something out in the world that is going to be so perfect that nobody can criticize it, that it's just so good. Nobody can criticize. And that is an impossible dream. That is not a reality, right? No matter what it is you do, no matter how genius it is, somebody's going to hate it. And you're just going to have to be like, yes, yes, yes. I love it. Snack on it. It's just good. You know, all that hate. Um, that's fine, right? Because you're not writing it to protect yourself from the people who wouldn't like it. You're writing it to give this gift to the people who need that book, right? 
So you kind of have to reverse that, that, that way of looking at the work that you're doing. And part of that means you need to know what your strengths are. Like we take our strengths for granted and we amplify our weaknesses so that all we see are weaknesses. And meanwhile, there are these strengths sitting over there. They're like the good kids that don't ever get any attention because they're so well behaved. Right. And then the bad kids are out there just misbehaving all over the place and they're getting all of our attention because we're just trying to correct them rather than appreciating the good kids who are doing good work completely ignored. So long and the short of it is that um, you have strengths in your writing that you're not even aware of. You have strengths in what you do. So like in those early stages, in the drafting, in the discovery, when you're doing discovery writing, in the first revision, you can let people look at it, but they are not allowed. You send it to them and say, I only want to know what's your favorite part. No constructive feedback, nothing critical. I only want to know what's your favorite part. And that feels like something that you shouldn't do. Like it feels oddly wrong, you know. Um, but the thing is, it is absolutely the best thing that you can do for your writing because you don't know your strengths. You don't know what you've done right because you're so focused on what you're doing wrong, you know. And your strengths are the things in your writing that if you follow them, they will lead you to the work that the people who need your work need to see. So build on the strengths. Don't worry about the weaknesses. Like, yeah, sure. If there's something you do, like I use a lot of like, there's some words that I, I use the F word just a lot, just a lot in my writing. Yes, absolutely. I need to go and weed that out, you know, later on. Fine. That's fine. Right. There are certain things that like, yes, it's not that you can't correct for some weaknesses. It's that your eye should be on the prize, which is your strengths. So that needs to be what you're looking at, what you want to do. Um, so I think that honestly, you know, in talking to you, I feel like your only problem is perspective, you know, that it's just that perspective shift of do I have to have fun and games and nonsense? No, you don't. And I and I hope that everybody stops doing that. I hope like I, I I'm not going to like, you know, begrudge Blake Snyder, the success of Save the Cat and all of that. But it is nonsense. Um, And you can you can go much more simple. Just focus on on taking this character you love and making their life hell like that is really your job. Um, so. If you just take that perspective out, if you let that go, if you realize it's going to be a mess and it has to be a mess and you can let it be a mess, that's great. And then when you're in revision, you know, when you do that first read through, you're going to pick up on because you've had that distance of six weeks. You're going to be able to be like, oh, here's the central narrative conflict. I get that. And an internal central narrative conflict, completely legit. I have written most of my books with internal conflicts and I was always like, I don't have a central narrative conflict. I don't know what's going on. I wrote them and they worked and I didn't know why, which is why I went into studying story because I was like, I don't understand how this works and people are paying me to write books and I don't know how to do this, you know? Um, so I had to go through and kind of figure out all of this stuff and simplify it into how story works, which is basically just these like simple principles that you can apply during revision but before that, you got to let loose. You got to think about what your strengths are. You got to lean into those strengths. Have as much fun as possible. Draft. Be a mess. Just let all that happen. Like release that, that, that hold you have on making this work. I love that. That is, it's inspiring and action oriented and super, super helpful. And, and I totally can't wait to get started writing now. <laughs> Yay! I'm excited. Okay, is there are there any other questions that you had for me while you've got me here? My brain is so full of all the wonderful <laughs> things that you've said. You know, one of the things that you're saying about Save the Cat is is that it's so rule oriented that I read it and I was just so upset because I was like, how can every story ever be broken down into the simplistic thing? And I got really upset. And then yeah. So many people talk about the hero's journey and I'm like, no, there's no nope. way that this is happening. Then I read Gail Carriger's The Heroine's Journey, mm -hmm. which is just amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's about a search for community instead of a search for independence. Yep. There are so many ways to tell a story yep. and, and getting so caught up in all of those rules can really, really mess with your head. And at the same time, 
you know, learning what the building blocks are, that's super important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if I sat down without knowing anything about how story works, mm-hmm. about anything about narratives, conflict, character development, I could write a pretty, you know, boring, stupid, non-working story, whatever it is. But at least I've written it. And as you're saying, you know, you could only edit a page that's full of words. You can't edit a blank page. So whatever it is, it's just easier to write once you sort of have that background of like, okay, what goes into a story? You have to sort of know who your character is. You have to know what the conflict is. You have to know how you want it to end. Mm -hmm. But yeah, other than that, you don't need to know until you're editing and then, you know, jumping into your principles of of exactly what needs to go into it and giving it some structure. It's like creating clay first, you know, (laughs) you're making the Play-Doh and, and you're just plopping it down there. And then as you revise, you sort of need to give it some structure. So, yeah, and it's, it's letting go. That's really, really hard. So it's a letting go of the control, Mm -hmm. letting go of the thinking that there are rules you have to follow Mm -hmm. and just, blowing it out on the page is really what I have to do and I really appreciate you know reiterating what you said just because it it really helps to to speak it back out loud to you after after you've explained it and I really I get it I think good Good. well I'm really glad Uh, one of the things too is that like those things from some of the like you know the heroine's journey the hero's journey you know save the cat there are things in there that can be valuable it is the idea that you have to do this and hero's journey is really more about mythology and meaning than it is necessarily about structure I don't think it was ever really intended to be structure I've heard a lot of good things about heroine's journey have not looked into that one yet um because Typically, when I look at these things, I end up getting really frustrated. Um, Robert McKee's story is really good, except when it's complete nonsense. Um, And I would say it's 80 percent nonsense. Um, So there's a lot of really good stuff out there that can be valuable in different ways. But like the thing is that if it's not helping you, chuck it. You don't need it. Like if you have this idea in your head and it's not helping you move through your book, then you don't need it. Um, Are you familiar with the tarot? You know, I've just started. I I just started consulting a daily tarot every day before I sit down to write. Nice. And it's so fun. Mm-hmm. Just just for inspiration and direction and, you know, trying not to be woo woo because I just moved to the Los Angeles beach cities and I'm trying really hard not to be groovy. But you know, <laughs> you here know I am learning tarot and getting my yoga up. certification. So I love it. I think that's <laughs> fabulous. Here's where the tarot can be really super helpful, especially on those days when you don't know what to write during drafting is just pull a tarot card. And then look at the meaning and try to see if there's a way that you can apply some of that meaning or something like that. Like use it. What I call it is a fat orange cat. We used to have these the first nano I did. Uh, You know, one of the, the women in the group had this this fat orange cat named Toby. And so one day she came in and she was like, everybody write Toby into your book. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to write Toby into my book. So I wrote Toby into the book and everybody wrote Toby into the book. And then I sold the book later and uh, my editor was like, yeah, you know, she's giving me my notes and everything. And she's like, well, you know, there was this one moment where like suddenly there was this cat in the middle, like they hadn't been there before and there wasn't there afterward. And like, what's up with that cat? And I was like, okay, that's fine. But the thing is, is that the, I cut Toby up. I think I cut Toby out. I have to go back and reference that book and see if I did. I think I did. But I kept the scene that Toby was built around because the rest of it was really useful. And having like a random thing that you can just pull um, that sets you like, you know, gives you, and the thing about the tarot that's so wonderful is that there's literal meanings and then there's like, you know, deep spiritual, you know, kind of meaning there's like many, many layers of meaning in every single card and you can pull it up. You can pull it up and be like nothing in this card really, but this guy, this dude's wearing an orange hat. And so I want to put an orange hat in the, in the book, like anything, something from the image. It doesn't matter anything you can pull from the tarot and use that. And during the drafting session for, the class, I would pull a tarot every day and be like, here's your card. Here's your meaning. Go ahead and see if that sparks something for you. And that can help a lot during drafting, especially when you're feeling a little dry. Um, but one of the things, too, before I leave you, I just want to kind of leave you with is the the fool card, which is like one of my favorite cards. Right. The fool card is the zero card in the major arcana. It's the first card of the tarot. And it is just this dude with a bindle over his shoulder. No idea what's coming going on a journey. He's so happy. He has no idea all the disasters that he's going to incur as he goes through the rest of the major arcana and then all of the minor arcana um, and all of the things that are going to happen. 
but he's just on the journey. All he has is he knows where his next step is going to be, and that's it. He doesn't know anything else. And that's you during drafting. You are the fool, right? So go in, draft, do your thing, have joy, you know, maximize your joy. Think about like also like how how much can I torment my character today? Another thing is like how much fun, what's the most possible fun I can have writing at this point in the story? Ask yourself those questions. And if you're finding yourself stuck, you can do a blindfold journal, you know, where you put like a blindfold on, you put, you know, noise, white noise or whatever, and then just touch type for a little bit until you get over that hump. You know, um, there's all sorts of strategies to do it, but I just um, I'm so excited to see where you go with this. I can't wait to hear about these stories that have been around for 22 years getting finished so you can write the next one. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you Thank and you. to learn from you. And I love listening to you every <laughs> month when you come out with a new podcast. Thank and you. and I'm just so excited to be a part of it. And I'm really honored. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm glad you reached out. Thank you so much to Cara Stevens for joining me today and chatting about things. For those of you who are interested in uh, Cara's um, expertise, which is with picture books and children's book, Cara is most well known among young readers as the author of several Minecraft graphic novels. Um, behind the scenes, she works with publishing companies to craft picture books based on characters like Paw Patrol, Dora the Explorer, Mickey Mouse, and SpongeBob. She recently self-published Picture Perfect, an insider's guide to writing picture books and hosts the Picture Perfect podcast, which expands on the concepts outlined in the book. A native New Yorker, she lives in the South Bay of Los Angeles. You can find her online at CaraJStevens.com and on Instagram at CaraJStevens, and that's Stevens with a V. Um, so definitely go and check out Cara, especially if you're interested in doing like picture books or children's fiction. I don't really talk that much about that. I think that she is an excellent, excellent counterpart to how story works for, for that kind of writing. Um, and if you're excited about that, definitely go grab a copy of Picture Perfect. All right. So if you would like to have a consult with me, like the one you just heard me do with Cara, there are two ways to get one. First, you can email me and offer to be a guest on How Story Works. Let me know the general shape of what you're struggling with, and we will sit down and have a chat. Or you can purchase a private hour-long consult along with other writing services from me. Go to LonnieDineRich.com and click on Writing Services. And that's it for this episode of How Story Works. I will be back next time with a big guest. But since we haven't recorded yet, I'm keeping a hush-hush for now. But I think you're going to love it. Thanks for hanging out with me today. And I look forward to seeing you next month. Now go write. <laughs>